Pleased to be joined today by Dr. Gary Latterman. He's the Goodrich C. White Professor of American Religious History and Cultures at Emory University and author of numerous books on death, spirituality, religion, culture, and psychedelics. Actually, I guess the psychedelics is a work in progress part, but it looks like you have some expertise in that area. Um, Gary, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. It's uh, uh, wonderful to be here. I appreciate uh, your invitation and I'm looking forward to, to talking with you. Likewise. So one of your books, Don't Talk About Death, I want to break that rule right away because it seems like you've been talking about death for several decades. Yeah, uh, indeed. And um, there's, yeah, something of a bit of playfulness in that uh, title, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, my yeah, my my whole career uh, really, and beginning pretty much in graduate school has been pretty focused on the topic of death. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. has made my career. Um, so yeah, it's been around. I teach it, I, I live it, and um, I study it, and I've written about it. Uh huh. Living death—that's that's an interesting paradox. Uh, it will, isn't it? Yeah, I guess we all do to some degree. Um, and uh -huh. even, uh, you know, especially with, uh, what, you know, whatever may be happening in terms of our, 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 our personal experiences, you know, what we are seeing in the media and what is happening in our society in terms of the onslaught of death constantly is um, also another layer of that sense of living death. Right. How did you first become drawn to study this topic? Yeah, well, I uh, don't know. I, uh, it's, um, I, I, I probably could be in therapy for years to kind of get into the, <laughs> the deepest, darkest uh, reasons that maybe are still unconscious. But, um, you know, at some point as an undergraduate, it was just I realized in terms of thinking and reflecting and, and whatever, intellectual Mm -hmm. energies i uh thought you know what else are you going to study i mean this if you really want to think about uh you know the meaning of it all and human history you know why not just go to the heart of it and um focus on on death so you know i was a psychology mm -hmm. major as an undergrad um but very much uh, on the more existentialist uh humanistic mm -hmm. side of psychology that was a long time ago um, and uh, I also taken religion classes. So mm -hmm. even though I got my BA in psychology, um, I had taken a few religion classes and you know, then that's where I sort of really found my home uh, with the topic of death for sure uh, in, in religious studies as a field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with, with like the psychology of death and then also with existentialist philosophy, but the, the religious side of things and the cross-cultural side is all new to me. So what brought you to, to that focus as opposed to, let's say, philosophy continuing that existentialist line of thought? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely um, a reorientation as I started graduate school mm -hmm. in religious studies uh, at university. University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, uh, going in, I was much more interested in the psychology of death, 
um, thinking about again more of the sort of subjective personal experiences with death and grief and so on. Um, but uh, you know, as I was going through my first maybe second year, I without going into all the details, basically, again, was sort of uh, a reorientation intellectually away from the individual and the personal to more of uh, the social and the cultural um, and thinking about death in terms of social history, religious history, um, and, uh, you know, more uh, in terms of uh, sort of cultural realities surrounding death. Mm -hmm. So I moved very far away from uh, just thinking again about what's happening, uh, you know, in the sort of interior existential kind of philosophical uh, side of how humans mm -hmm. deal with this uh, universal reality. Yeah. How does the research process look like when you're comparing cultures? The research, uh, my research is in American religious history, you know, so mm -hmm. my, my books, uh, the, the, the first book was my dissertation that mm -hmm. looked at the impact of uh, the Civil War on um, American attitudes toward death and the practices surrounding the dead. Uh, the second book was a sequel to that book called Rest in Peace. Um, it was a sequel to, a, you know, a book that didn't sell anything. So why would anyone write a sequel? Um, I was compelled because I uh, found it so, uh, you know, interesting. The first book kind of ends with what I refer to as the birth of the funeral industry. So the second book kind of picks up that story and looks at the rise and um, incredible power and uh, profitability of the funeral industry and funeral homes uh, over the course of the 20th century. And again, and again, too, thinking about what is the cultural and religious impact of these changes that come after the Civil War. Wow. So anyway, I'm more focused, you know, really in terms of American sort of more mainstream culture, um, even though I would say a lot of my, the, the work that I've done is informed, as you were alluding to, to more of a kind of comparative framework, mm -hmm. um, which is not thinking about death in America, but thinking about how do people respond to death in India or in parts of Africa or thinking about indigenous mm -hmm. cultures and really trying to break out of, um, you know, what has been the more familiar frame with which mm -hmm. at least I have thought about death. Yeah, maybe we could unpack both of those two books briefly. So if, if, if possible to sum up, what, would, what were the broad religious perspectives on death in America pre and post Civil War? Uh, they were predominantly, uh, in terms of my study, um, Protestant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're thinking- Both before and after? Oh yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I explore pretty much the ways in which white America, for the most part, has um, responded to death. Again, uh, historically, thinking about that um, before and after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So I'm primarily looking at, you know, again, mainstream Protestant cultures. The first book is looking in the Northeast, so it's even more uh, specific. Mm -hmm. uh, southern cultures, Southern society, um, the role of religion in responding to death in the Southern states. There, there are different books uh, that are out there that focus on that. So mine is looking at the North, primarily because that's where the funeral industry takes root. 
You know, I, I was primarily interested in um, exploring uh, the question, to be honest, in the first book. Um, the question of, of where does embalming come from? You know, be, you know, and that's based on personal experiences as a young kid and, you know, having grandparents die and being able to see an embalmed body and somehow that planted a seed so that uh, in this reorientation in graduate school, that became the kind of central focus is what do people do with the corpse? And then, you know, kind of seeing how predominant embalming is in American funeral practices, you know, no one had really kind of explored uh, that question from a right. religion angle. And so that's, that's kind of what I went after. Mm -hmm. um, to quickly answer, I mean, just to kind of make it simple in some ways is, uh, you know, after the Civil War, you see the emergence of the funeral director, uh, the funeral home begins to be the, uh, again, predominant space of death. Um, and you see the emergence of a whole industry around care of the dead. Right. Before the Civil War, there is no funeral home. There are no funeral directors. You know, there may be you know, some undertakers in bigger cities, but it's mainly the work of the family, of the community. Uh, you know, uh, it's more of a, if you will, an intimate affair uh, mm -hmm. that brings people and that brought people together um, without, you know, um, any kind of institutional mediators other than, you know, the church. Uh -huh. So the landscape is completely radically changed after the Civil War, you know, over the course of a couple decades. Uh -huh. So is that to say that during the Civil War, there were so many bodies that you kind of needed this, this outside help, but then once people started doing that, it just, it just stuck and they kept going to these funeral homes? Uh, well, there were a lot of bodies for sure, but um, what you had were, for the most part, um, more wealthy or middle upper middle class northerners mm -hmm. who wanted to find a way to get their brother or son or father uh, off of the southern, what were mainly southern battlefields, and brought back to the north so that they could um, be interred in sacred ground i mean this mm -hmm. is where the religion comes in you know that isn't so much about protestantism but it has to do with um notions of, of nationalism you know, of sacrifice mm -hmm. and so on um and the integrity and, and importance of kind of controlling the ultimate uh you know um the, the sort of ultimate end of the corpse uh -huh. so so there you know that opened this sort of entrepreneurial door for certain individuals who could find a way to preserve bodies, mm -hmm. you know, because the train ride from the South to the North could be quite uh, a while. Yep. And so preservation was pretty uh, challenging. Someone, you know, again, cutting a lot out, just, you know, mm -hmm. someone uh, came up with embalming as a, as a method of preservation on the battlefield that, you know, I mean, it didn't just all of a sudden explode, but it seemed to to work and people were willing to pay. And then quickly, the main sort of turning point in public consciousness around embalming is, uh, is the death of Abraham Lincoln and mm -hmm. the display of his embalmed body as it was put on a funeral train 
um, and you know, stopped in about 20 different cities in the north mm -hmm. um, so that people, tens, hundreds of thousands of people could huh. wow. take, a, take a look and view the body and see his, his physical sacred remains. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you use the, the term sacred for a figure of a president. Is that, does that have to do with something about like the power that people look, are looking up to this figure? Oh, well, in part, certainly. Sacred is tied to notions of power and certain kinds of positions and figures and, and um, you know, icons in various ways. So, yeah, I mean, sacred it relates to the presidency and relates to, you know, kind of another, as I mentioned earlier, kind of another religious system or culture that is a part of American religious history. And that you know, some of uh, various scholars have, have, have referred to this as um, civil religion. Uh, mm -hmm. This is the religion of nationalism. And certainly the president is, is you know, again, um, at least from some perspectives considered to be a kind of sacred positions, but you could mm -hmm. also talk about um, sacred texts yeah. like Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, you know, or think about the mythology of the founding fathers. So there's a whole religious sort of system that's tied into uh, notions of, of, of our nation um, that is very interesting for people like me in religious studies. Um, yeah, that, that is very interesting. So it, it sounds yeah, like the religion, the term there could be used not only to talk about like beliefs, spiritual beliefs, but also like these, these uh, cultural practices. Oh man, yeah, that's where I'm at, is mixing those up, uh, uh -huh. thinking of the ways in which we, what sometimes get referred to as sort of secular cultural practices are uh -huh. uh, potentially full of religious meanings and sacred possibilities, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so dur during the Civil War, in the North especially, was there, was there any overlap between like the, mo the motives for uh, for fighting and and religious beliefs surrounding individual freedoms like anti-slavery so maybe changing a perspective on death in such a way that they're like this is a noble sacrifice that we're willing to make because we're fighting for individual freedom yeah you nailed it yeah the, the, the gettysburg address i mean this is the the, the rhetoric is uh, very much about martyrdom and sacrifice and and certainly that's not completely new in the civil war but the sort of scale um, is different. The notion of enemy is different. You know, it's not some external uh, force or some force that's seen as external or foreign, uh, but it's the sort of this internal, uh, you know, struggle that we are continuing to struggle with, um, you know, today. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the kind of uh, influence and power of white supremacy, notions of racism that, that certainly are tied into uh, uh, the Confederacy and, and, and parts of, of how people understood the, the Civil War um, yeah. and that conflict. So is, is this like a retrospective bias looking back on an important mo a moment in history? Or would you say that we've moved towards a culture that's less sacrificial, that's more like, you know, why would I? Uh, why would I want to give up my life for the sake of the state more and more like criticizing the state? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. there are, um, I, I, I do think attitudes are quite different. 
and the politics of death are quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly they existed in, during the Civil War and before, of course, the death, um, I won't say is always political, but uh, certainly um, in terms of uh, social history and so on, uh, certainly um, can be politicized. And uh, while um, notions of sacrifice and death and martyrdom can bring communities together um, in ways you know, that, uh, that encourage um, even more conflict. Um, you know, these, these are sort of the, some of the powerful religious forces that, uh, that, that we see at work. And mm-hmm. how we think about death uh, in relation to those religious forces is definitely, uh, you know, and in terms of the nation has definitely changed over time. So we aren't as unified. And in yeah. many ways, as to what counts as some kind of uh, meaningful national sacrifice, and I, you know, certainly the the Vietnam War would be, in its own way, a turning point of how, um, in, at least in public consciousness, in sort of public media, there are you know we see an increasing um, popular effort to question, you know, why those soldiers were dying and the cause behind, you know. Uh, the Vietnam War. So, um, you know, that, that too is, again, not to over-dramatize it as a turning point, but I think it does signal um, how things change. And, you know, even today with COVID, thinking about uh, over a million dead and how we, you know, how we're going to process all of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And, there, and there's so many different levels of analysis that you could, you could make someone like, I guess you could say as part of your in-group or out-group. So, for example, with the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, if you're looking at it from more like, uh, you mentioned nationalism as, as sort of like a religion. From that perspective, it's like, why would we give up our own, our own American lives to help others? But then if you're looking at it on a broader, like humanistic perspective, it's like, we are humans, they're humans. It's a equal trade-off if we get to save them. It's uh, certainly complicated, and history is full of, um, yeah, moments, uh, you know, in which uh, these kinds of conflicts escalate into larger global um, wars, you know, world wars, and and so you know that that certainly uh, you know brings us into a whole other level. So, uh, you know, I mean, it, it is the case that part of uh, the religion of nationalism is. Um, ensuring that the dead, you know, are ritually put in play in place and are ritually commemorated to remind people about some kind of special, uh, you know, divine or sacred status of the nation. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes, you know, that leads to more, as you're saying, kind of uh, internal domestic kinds of um, dynamics, but other times mm-hmm. in other instances in history, it can lead to um, you know, a, a more uh, kind of international effort uh, or global, uh, you know, engagements mm-hmm. that, um, you know, are always problem, problematic and kind of can, can be, be difficult uh, to, um, you know, to really parse out and, and um, predict how things are going to, you know, mm-hmm. end up. Right. Is there any like natural anchor point or level of analysis that that we tend to apply our religious views to. So here's a a few examples. On a more local level, 
I went to USC for undergrad, which has a very big rivalry with UCLA. So like on sports days, there's going to be this heavy tribalism, but we don't genuinely hate anyone at UCLA. And maybe you could take that up one level <clears throat> and say, we're all Californians, but Californians generally aren't hating on any different states. Uh, and then if you generalize one level further, which seems to be the one we're most familiar with, we identify as Americans and there's kind of this national unity there. Uh, you could keep going up further. You could say there's like a continent level uh, na nationality that we all share, but people don't really do that. And then I guess at the high extreme, which some religious uh, views try, try and, and motivate that type of thinking, we have like, you know, we're all human. Or I guess in between that, you might have religion itself being the, like the group membership thing. And then they might claim, uh, anyway, I think you get the, you get the idea. I, I, I do. I, I like how you're putting it. And I think uh, it's interesting to play with and just think about group and group identity and affiliation, mm -hmm. how we uh, understand our identities and, you know, not just in some superficial way, but like at the core or in some kind of more cosmic way. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, the, you know, one's identity can certainly be tied up into the local, into mm -hmm. local sports teams. You know, that's the, another book I wrote is called Sacred Matters. And one of the mm -hmm. chapters is on sports and looking at, you know, the various ways and many, many other people have written about the ways in which sports can be religious. Mm -hmm. um, and again, not just let's have a prayer before, you know, uh, we go out and kill the other team. Um, you know, it, it has to do with ritual. It has to do with uh, collective effervescence. It has to do um, with questions of identity and meaning and so on. Um, so, you know, I don't care. You know, you can take it up whatever level you want, but I think you can still distinguish certain kinds of uh, religious qualities and elements at every level. Mm -hmm. that again that's what i study that's what i find interesting uh -huh. um although i'm not so interested in kind of universal stuff yeah you know i don't think in general except other than the sort of um the universals that have to do with our bodies right that's uh -huh. where i'm focused we age yeah. sexuality um uh death you know it's those kinds of uh, inevitable universal realities are what spur religious right. thought and action and activity. Right. So, so I guess here's something uh, that, that might tie all this together, because I'm imagining a slider scale of like minimum to maximum unity in, in terms of how you might have these, these religious or cultural beliefs on, on nearer towards the minimum side, you might have like sports teams where everything's mostly the same, but you're just wearing a different uniform, or maybe you have different sects within the same religion and the beliefs of, about certain rituals are just slightly different. And then on the end, you, you have some ideas of like cosmic unity. And I like that you use that, that word cosmic because those types of thoughts seem to, in many cases, be triggered by psychedelics. And I know you, you've done some research on that topic as well. You, you beat me to it. <laughs> yeah, that's uh -huh. where I think that's a go. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, uh, right. I mean, that I was just, you know, that's kind of one example of the ways in which, um, uh, you know, people can um, assume or adopt a perspective of sort of universal consciousness or at some level, you mm -hmm. know, we all share there's some unity. 
right. um, and that is uh, that is um, uh, often um, uh, that that is often uh, uh, experienced through you know um, the consumption of different kinds of psychoactive psychedelic substances, but not always. You certainly can have that experience of unity without drugs of any kind. So. Mm -hmm. um, that ties into a whole other debate around what's, what's referred to as perennial philosophy, you know, the kind of mm -hmm. again, notion that ultimately, you know, all the different religions all uh, kind of can share some common qualities and mm -hmm. uh, perspectives and so on. And, uh, and again, so that I don't go, you know, that far in terms of, um, you know, uh, trying to identify something that's universal that we all at some level share. Um, mm -hmm. I, I myself am much more interested in historical change and how uh, cultures uh, and religious cultures uh, emerge, change, mm -hmm. you know, disappear and so on. Huh. So then in your, in your own research on psychedelic use, is it more from that historical perspective of like, here's this weird thing that started happening in like the 60s and 70s and changed our culture? Uh, well, no, uh, it's, you know, I, I I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of, of getting this book together. So it's actually, you know, it's kind of in process taking shape and that's kind of fun to be in that space. Mm -hmm. um, as difficult as it's been uh, in the past couple of years with the pandemic, especially. Um, but no, you know, my interest is really, uh, psychedelics are just a little part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, my my kind of my 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 interest is is trying to unpack and think through the reality of uh, the fact that we're all on drugs. You know, mm -hmm. we're all on drugs are ubiquitous in our society. The psychoactive substances. I'm talking, as you can anticipate, you know, about coffee mm -hmm. and alcohol and cannabis. A whole range of other kinds of substances, and including psychedelics. So, so just that that sort of what I think is a sort of fact of our lives. And I'm also talking about prescription pills, uh -huh. right? And the pharmaceutical industry. So, what role do these altered states of consciousness play in our spiritual and religious lives? Mm -hmm. I think they're integral. Really, and part of that sense, and that kind of. Uh, uh, what might be <laughs> um, outrageous statement, you know, is certainly based on history mm -hmm. and thinking cross-culturally about the role and purposes and presence um, and meanings of, of altered states of consciousness as they, you know, as they're tied to, um, again, these psychoactive substances. So, um, mm -hmm. so quickly, yeah, the 60s are a key turning point in all of this, but, um, but it's also, again, I think more of a larger uh, cultural characteristic of American spiritual life. Uh -huh. Right. So if we talk about coffee more specifically, I've, I've heard an argument that coffee kind of emerged in Europe around the same time as the Enlightenment and correlation is not causation, but I've, I've heard some arguments trying to link those two together. Do you think there's any merit to that? So the idea is well, people started drinking coffee and then they became more productive and the Enlightenment happens. And well, it has a, certainly a longer history than Europe and the Enlightenment, and, and mm -hmm. especially as you tie it into um, the history of Africa and the Middle East and thinking about uh, especially Islam, although there's mm -hmm. more involved in Sufism. So coffee is, 
an incredibly, uh, you know, um, fascinating history that um, is about so much more than, you know, just coffee. But certainly that is a, um, you know, theory that, that is out there, you know, that mm -hmm. as, as coffee comes to Europe, um, it also may kind of correspond with this, um, uh, you know, uh, explosion of new ideas and, um, you know, changes in society and, and social order and how, you know, how people are thinking. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, clearly the impact of coffee as you, as you kind of follow it um, through, at least in this strand from Europe into America, it, is is um, clearly tied to modes of production, to mm -hmm. issues around again worker productivity um, and new ideas of social space, but that also you know um, have other kinds of ritual functions that yeah. uh, are meaningful in people's lives. And so this would be an example to me of you know um, I have a very broad understanding of religion and religious life. So in one end of the spectrum, you might have, you know, the psychedelic experience and some extraordinary, supernatural, incredible, uh, you know, eye-opening uh, experience. Mm -hmm. But on the other end, religion is also about stability and ensuring yeah. that the cosmos isn't chaos um, and that there's order and structure and that, you know, that coffee plays, I think, an incredibly important role historically, uh, but also today in our lives of, um, you know, and again, it's not just, we're just drinking something that's liquid, but it's, you know, has an impact on our consciousness that, um, you know, um, is a resource. Uh -huh. um, as a source of strength. Um, it can lead to addiction. Well, that's a whole other story. Um, that's a part of at least for me, this book, but, um, uh, but anyway, you kind of get my point in thinking yeah. about coffee and, and um, it's not just in other words, maybe not, not just a, uh, 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 something that, that encourages secularization or like, you know, a kind of um, uh, spiritualist society, mm -hmm. coffee, you know, helps create spiritual and religious um, modes of behavior. Uh -huh. Right. So if, if you ask someone nowadays, like, tell me about yourself, it seems like many people's go-to answer is going to describe what they're studying or what their job is, what they do for a living. And it seems like in our culture, that's like a very defining characteristic of, of many people. Maybe it's seen as the primary goal of your life to, to develop this meaningful, successful career. Maybe the only thing that, that would really compete with that for most people is marriage and family. But is, do you think that having that productivity mindset that might be related to caffeine consumption is, was that, is that like a cultural shift that's happened over the years that now we, we tend to view work as a, a, a much larger part of our life than before? Uh, oh man. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, and for some people, I mean, you know, this is, uh, uh clearly you know detrimental to human flourishing and thriving in some ways mm -hmm. um that you know ish sort of emphasis and urgency about productivity and 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 while coffee might be implicated 
in that kind of um, cultural sensibility. Um, look at the pharmaceutical companies, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. as well. So Adderall and other kinds of um, uh, uh, pills, prescription pills, uh, pills that uh, are rampant in um, certainly in colleges, but also, uh, you know, around uh, the country uh, mm -hmm. that are used for the purposes of, you know, I got to keep going, I got to make it through, I got to be productive, or, you know, I've got to be creative. So, you know, these, these substances are, are built into how we, you know, um, get through the day, how we, you know, again, not just how we struggle, but how we are propelled, and in some ways empowered, uh, that, 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 that can have, um, you know, dramatic transformative impact on people's lives. And, and as you're saying, how they see themselves, how they think about what, you know, what, not just what they're doing, but what they should be aspiring to, you know, kind of right. what, what is the journey about and where am I going? And, and, you know, again, I, I mean, I hate to overdo it, but sort of what is sacred? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Cause it ain't now, I don't think for a lot of us, it's just, it ain't the Bible. You know, mm -hmm. it ain't going to church, but it's uh, music and it's, uh, right. you know, maybe doing some mushrooms or whatever. Uh -huh. So a cynical answer to that might be something like we're moving towards belief that nothing is sacred. But I I'm guessing you would object to that. I'm guessing that you might say something like different things are filling in the, the role of sacred, but I'm not sure what those different things would be. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I yeah, you won't be nailed it again in, in terms of how people sometimes respond uh, to these kinds of claims um, that I'm making that others you know uh, as well are making about the changing kind of shifting contours of of religion and how we recognize religion as well as how people are experiencing religion and understanding again their own identities um, so to digress quickly, you know, that, that's an important um, context to, to, mm -hmm. to keep in mind as we're talking about religion in the more contemporary society, right? The fastest growing, or at least more until recently, the fastest growing group has been the nuns, right? The N-O-N-E-S. Oh, yeah. Right, nun, N-O-N-E-S. People who, you know, on a survey will check off none when asked, mm -hmm. what is your religious affiliation? Uh -huh. So that, you know, is um, in the past, whatever, decades, few decades has, has become, again, now a major piece of the pie, so to speak. So that's the context we're in. What that signals, you know, it's a lot of atheists and agnostics, people who are spiritual but not religious, people who come from interfaith families. So it's not, you can't just pick one, you know, it's multiple. Mm -hmm. um, our whole concept of religion has got to go that's my thinking and we you know we we, we got to rethink how we understand um, the religious aspects of our lives so is that closer to the spiritual but not religious box uh yeah for some even though i'm not a guy that sort of likes that term I, you know spiritual is religious it's the same thing uh -huh. you know what what people want to get away from is religion and the sort of institutional kind of overlord qualities i'm free i can be spiritual i don't need to be told and so on um but it's all about this uh well here i am talking about universals <laughs> um it is you know i think part of this human 
religious impulse. You know, it's like we're all religious in some way. So to get to your question or that comment, um, yeah, I would I would say I don't go in the direction of well, nothing is sacred, mm -hmm. and I don't go into the direction of well, everything is sacred. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's like uh, anything can be sacred. Mm -hmm you know, for any, you know, for any culture or group of, you know, group of people, uh -huh. you know, what is sacred is, is in many ways limitless. And, and again, not to um, sound like I don't want to go there, but it's also very complicated. The sacred is a really interesting, you know, a different kind of category to use to talk yeah. about religion, spirituality, yeah. and so I, on. I like that idea of anything can be sacred. It seems to explain, especially in academia, how so many people fall in love with a very very narrow question and it maybe in their life becomes sacred oh hell yeah no that's uh me i, I like to play with that like my religion is education or something you know yeah. knowledge is sacred right. and of course i'm inevitably asked about are you religious and so on uh-huh yeah i think we're tapping into broad enough questions though that that everyone can resonate with them which is which is quite nice um yeah well some people don't like <laughs> wouldn't like this and certainly when i've said that about atheists say well no no uh, not everyone's religious and you know I, i'm not that doesn't apply and i and so on but that gets into that very complicated word atheism and what, yeah. does, what does it stand for what do people assume it means what do we how is that used individually by people whatever you've also written a book on science and religion is that right uh no um <laughs> I, I, I helped to actually we put together an encyclopedia um uh -huh. uh, there's a couple volumes on on religion science and society uh -huh. so i got to edit that uh one of the editors um mm -hmm. which was quite a few years ago but i you know it was, it was yeah it was, it was incredibly uh, uh fulfilling um exciting project mm -hmm. yeah yeah because that that was reminding me this this idea of atheists objecting to not being spiritual but I, I was I had this thought that even even science to some extent seems to have like a necessary faith component because it's like the most rational atheist scientists believe that there's some sort of truth out there to be discovered so that's sort of a metaphysical belief you're it's like the truth is out there in the cosmos and if we use the right method we can tap into it and access it right uh, I hate to say it but yeah I have a chapter on science uh, and the sacred. So I'm with you on that. I think there are ways in which uh, science can be sacred. There are ways in which science can be religious. It's not saying that always, you know, science is always religious all the time for everyone. Um, but that there are, you know, certain uh, characteristics, qualities, uh, experiences that, um, you know, I think to me, obviously, uh, bump into, if not you know, um, overlap with certain kinds of spiritual uh, yearnings or religious questions, um, uh, certainly ritual activity that, that has, um, you know, kind of clear indications of, of something mm -hmm. that is of ultimate uh, value and concern. Yeah. Um, I wrote, you know, quickly uh, a, a, a short, um, article called the cult of doctors that looks at you know the rise of biomedicine and the figure of the doctor in the white coat 
in the early 20th century, you know, and tried to look at that as a religious culture, even though, you know, again, sort of the notion is early 20th century, especially science and religion are, you know, wrenched apart and they're totally separate. And mm -hmm. I try to kind of, you know, look at, at, at early biomedicine um, and, and particularly one of the more famous early brain surgeons of that era. Mm -hmm. um, I forget his name, Harvey Cushing. Mm -hmm. uh, and him, you know, as a kind of case study to tease out, you know, the ways in which, um, you know, that became in itself a religious culture and that we still in many ways live with, you know, have faith in our doctors. Um, you know, the, the intimacy that doctors have with our bodies and explaining the meaning of, of suffering or how we respond to, uh, you know, suffering, uh, affliction, pain, um, and so on. So, so there's all kinds of uh, um, different uh, examples that I think mm -hmm. would suggest that you know this <clears throat> could be considered uh, a kind of religious veneration. You know, mm -hmm. Again, especially in that first half of the 20th century. Right. So this this might potentially show my bias towards the everything is sacred direction. But couldn't you say the same thing about? like your mechanic or your plumber, you're placing your faith in them and they're trying to ease your suffering with this well, problem. And Well, yeah, I mean, look, um, I don't want to uh, inherit anyone uh, in terms of their intellectual questions and um, predilections. I, I, you know, I mean, I think there's something about the healer mm -hmm. um, that uh, also kind of adds to the mythology around the medical doctor that you might not have with the mechanic or the uh -huh. or healing uh, the engine in the car <laughs> local uh, lawyer um so you know it's it's uh, it's worth exploring and and you know i love the conversations around uh how do we understand the boundaries of you know kind of what's religious and what's not or can it be that you can say the same things about other professions and so on i I would, you know, I don't, you know, I think there are distinctions that, mm -hmm. that are important that have to do with existential questions mm -hmm. that you yeah. don't get. Well, you know, again, um, that, you know, um, that enough people, you know, necessarily, I think you need a kind of a critical mass. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's not just about does one individual feel like their car mechanic is sacred, but if mm -hmm. there is a, a larger community that begins to you know show and display certain signs, then I'm all in. Uh huh. Right. So the the idea is, as a culture, we we as a whole place that that type of faith more in our doctors and have that type of special relationship with them. Well, yeah, I think. Yeah, I buy that. Uh, uh, yeah, them, and also if you know, again, back to my book, but funeral directors for sure. Uh huh. Yeah. Who, so who take care of the dead? We have all kinds of weird feelings and ambivalent thoughts about and that too is its own history you know and strange uh, variations and who handles the dead and so on mm -hmm. was this more from a, a distanced historical record perspective or did, were you, did you have the chance to interview any funeral home directors or people like that i fortunately was able to interview a handful of funeral uh -huh. directors for that second book so i went around the country um here and there. And I was specifically looking for funeral directors whose families had been in the business for generations. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I started my research, um, 
uh, you know, coincides with the great sort of takeover of mom and pop funeral homes by big, you know, multinational corporations and things, mm -hmm. you know, where, where that, um, that family history, uh, which I think is utterly fascinating and sadly will be lost, likely. Um, I got to tap into that a little bit with, with mm -hmm. some of the people and that again helped for me to try to reconstruct the past um, and, and mm -hmm. in terms of the funeral home. What are, what are they like? And is, is this more of a personal interest for most of them or are they, is it something like, this is a family tradition that I uphold and it's sort of seen as like this responsibility? Hey, you're gonna get really tired of me, uh, but it's sacred. It's a sacred uh -huh. vocation, you know, again, for, you know, for people who are, you know, who, who, who are coming into the funeral industry and don't have any family history, it can mean a lot of different things. It can be mm -hmm. lucrative. There could be all kinds of reasons. But for the people I was most interested in, the people who, again, were in it for a long time, yeah, I mean, they saw it in those terms. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, I got to stay in the business. You know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm carrying on a tradition that has incredible mm -hmm. significance uh, for the neighborhood and for people that, you know, these people were friends with and, and, and know because they live in the neighborhoods of the people they served. Mm -hmm. Now, were there scandals? Absolutely. Uh, were there people, you know, all of the narratives and stereotypes around funeral directors, again, part of this cultural dynamic, um, don't just, you know, appear out of nowhere. There are all kinds of problems and issues. But uh, for me, at that local level, I, you know, I felt nothing but um, uh, a generosity and, and people who were quite genuine. Uh, and, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed having a chance to be with them and talk with them. Mm -hmm. Of course, when the book came out, it was um, for a little while, you know, kind of uh, championed by <laughs> funeral directors. So I got to go to a few funeral directors association meetings, you know, these national mm -hmm. conferences of people who were in the funeral wow. business. And boy, those are wild. Uh, and now those are, again, sort of, uh, for me, great, fun, and really, mm -hmm. really good people. Yeah. So do you need to have this sort of sacredness or, or spiritual belief when dealing with suffering or with heavy topics such as death and disease? Is that like a human universal? Um, I would say, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, easy that for me to say. I don't know what evidence I have, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I do. I think that that it elicits, it's part of um, the part of the embodied experience requires some kind of sacred turn or some kind of spiritual uh, grappling with, um, again, and not just suffering and death and pain, but also ecstasy, you know, yeah. also um, feelings of transcendence uh -huh. um, and bliss, you know, right. uh, again, those, those two can have religious resonances for people, even if they're coming from you know, running, you know, just you know, your daily jog or whatever, getting that runner's high. Um, is that religious? You know, again, yeah, maybe for some people, you know, in some ways it is. And, mm -hmm. and I, I'll also say, which isn't, you know, kind of just maybe uh, too much for someone who's, um, who studies religion, um, you know, and likes to make sure I am getting it right as best I can. I also, will take the position that sometimes people are religious in ways that they don't recognize. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you know, that's a bit unfair and, and uh, <laughs> assertive in its way, but um, when you think about religion in terms of, again, ritual, myth, identity, life after death, or the meaning of life in the face of death, you know, you can find, you know, those, those kinds of elements are very much, you know, uh, very much a part of, of, uh, of, of how people deal with those kinds of things you mentioned. Just, right. So it seems like there, there are two extreme responses that one could have to mortality. This is related to both what we talked about earlier with drug use and then productivity and what you said just now about ecstasy. So on, on one end, you might have people who look at death and say, life is short. I'm going to do what brings me the most pleasure while I'm here. And that might be the drug use or just uh, pursuing different different activities that will bring them the most pleasure while they're here. And then on the other hand, you have like the, the productivity side. So people who might use drugs like Adderall to produce the most, or even without the drugs, just having a real productivity mindset with the idea of life is finite. I want to make a lasting impact, something that lasts beyond uh, my finite life. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. I think those are two of a few options uh-huh. in thinking, you know, um, about, yeah, sort of responding to the reality of death and what does that lead to? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly can lead to extreme hedonism. You know, while I'm here, I got to do it all and feel as good as I can or, you know, whatever. And that that's, you know, again, that may be for some people. Uh-huh. Right. Um, so I think I'm looking at those as two extremes on a, on a single spectrum. So it would go from maximum hedonism to like maximum pursuing something meaningful. Uh, do, do you think that's a false dichotomy? Uh, well, I mean, I, I try to, I, dichotomies can be tricky. I think they're, you know, that um, they're, you know, the whole notion of like, again, productivity uh, may may not you know uh, may not be the antithetical to hedonism. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's sort of um, self denial or something. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I you know I don't know, but um, certainly the, the you, as you're saying um, for for me I tell you qu- quickly and I'm not going to remember all this, but uh, I immediately go to a psychologist who's well known and people have read his work, a guy named Robert J. Lifton. And he's wrote, he's written on the dropping of the atomic bomb and um, the Nazis, you know, so he's got, he's written a lot, but he, uh, you know, there's one thing he wrote that has stuck with me and I off, you know, stuck with me, although I'll forget it all, but um, you know, that I, I refer to in my class in death and dying and, and, and again, responding to what you were saying. And um, sort of the question is um, in, in response to death, how do people imagine um, some kind of uh, transcendence of death? Mm-hmm. How do people, I think he calls it sort of symbolic transcendence. How do, how do people transcend the reality of death in some way? And he talks about the different six modes of immortality, right? One is, was you're mentioning, kind of creativity. What are you leaving behind Yeah. in terms of your output and your work? And, you know, that might refer to uh, an architect or a songwriter or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be one. Another would be biological. You know, your children mm-hmm. is how you are 
maintain a certain level of immortality and, and transcend that. Um, the other, another would be more theological, and it's just more of the what we might think in terms of traditional religion. We transcend death by accepting Jesus, or you know, by yeah. um, you know, understanding the truth of, of Nirvana or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to remember them all. Another would, is what he calls uh, experiential transcendence, which might tie into the hedonism, but is more about you know the moment in which, like when you're tripping and you realize time is an illusion and you're outside of time, and sort of you can have that more, more temporary sense of transcending. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you know, people's uh, often people's um, mystical experience as they're tripping is some kind of uh, reality or understanding or revelation i should say yeah. about about death and um and certainly some it's interesting to see how psychedelics might be used um as a cure or as a help for people's death anxieties mm -hmm. you know? yeah it sounds like you're you're referring to roland griffith's work is that right Oh, yeah. And others. There's all kinds of yeah people. Yeah. Who, I was going to yeah. ask you about that. Um, I, I, it seems like because right. I can't nice... remember the other I, I can't remember the other modes, <laughs> but uh -huh. they're out there. The other modes of uh, um, symbolic immortality. But anyway, yeah, yeah it's on. interesting that, that some of those are clearly behavioral. So like in the case of the productivity mindset one or leaving offspring, all these are things you can go out of your way and do and then cement your legacy, so to speak. But the others seem to be more psychological or more spiritual. Definitely. Well, right. I mean, so there too, there might be these other um, ways of when you, you're, you're really confronting death to sort of how does that, how, how do I think about my life and how, you know, how do I transcend that reality? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, di I did want to ask you about your thoughts on Roland Griffith's work. It seems like the scientific parallel to, to some of what we've been talking about today. So um, one, one study that stands out to me is that people who use psychedelics um, with terminal illness, it re reduced death anxiety. So, and not only that, but it wasn't just taking the drug and the death anxiety goes away. It was limited specifically to people who, while taking the hallucinogen, had a spiritual experience. And then there were a handful who didn't have that spiritual experience and didn't see the reduction in death anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more to study. And um, it's just, it's just yeah, yeah, really hard to get into what is often described as an indescribable experience mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, what, what, what the impact of the hallucinogen is. Um, but I, um, uh, as you can guess, I'm fascinated by that question and mm -hmm. that connection between um, sort of the experience that's for many people seen in, in religious or spiritual terms mm -hmm. and the alleviation of death anxiety. Um, mm -hmm. That is gonna be a future frontier that's I, I imagine gonna be um, you know, quite uh, unpredictable, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of is that gonna be just limited for terminal patients? And, you know, I have a lot of death anxiety so, uh, you know, maybe, you know, that can help me and, you know, others who, who are in different situations um, and have different kinds of afflictions. And, and again, you know, then the, the, how accessible uh, these kinds of, of substances are going to be is, is, is another question that was still unfolding. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I, you know, to, to go back to your question, I think there, there's, there's a lot more, you know, to, to try to explore in terms of the people who don't claim any religious mm-hmm. part of their experience as they describe mm-hmm. it. Um, and then thinking about how that might relate to their um, not having, you know, any impact on their death anxiety. Uh-huh. So your own death anxiety, has it gone up as a result of thinking about death for your entire career? Or is it more <laughs> like it was already very high and thinking about it helped reduce it, but it's still pretty high? Um, you know, that's funny. Uh, I think it's uh, always been very high, uh, quite uh-huh. uh, honestly. And so this has been my uh, defense mechanism in good old uh-huh. psychoanalytic terms, the sort of intellectualization of the things that make us anxious. So, uh-huh. so yeah, I think it's always been there. But listen... Uh, getting older and seeing uh, friends die, parents die, you know, living with death in a way that I didn't and hadn't really experienced, even though if you read that book, you'll see along the way, certainly have had different, as we all do, experiences with death. But if, you know, you're making it to 60 and getting into that range, um, yeah, I think death anxiety becomes uh, um, more nuanced. It's, it's not um, so um, theoretical and imaginary, but, but it also begins to uh, morph and change that kind of the feelings of anxiety and the thoughts that are tied to it. So, uh, so I think it's um, part of an ongoing, you know, aspect of my, of my journey. Mm-hmm. And throughout all your research, especially the, the stuff that looks at comparative perspectives on death, whether that's across different cultures or just just across different time periods, is it purely comparison for comparison's sake and it's interesting to describe? Or have you found that there are better and worse approaches on how to look at death? Well, boy, well, I, you know, as uh, for sure, I don't think in terms of better or worse, um, uh, at least uh, teaching and research and what I'm doing and my own personal sort of uh, grappling with the question is, is, is another story. I, uh, you know, in terms of the work that I've done, it's been essential to, I think, to get an even better sense of the American cultural, you know, experiences around death. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for anyone, being able to um, expand your knowledge and see that there are multiple ways people not only understand death and life after death, but also um, what they think about the body, you know, whether it should be uh, burned or whether it should be left, you know, on a platform for be exposed to the elements or whether it should be embalmed or, uh, you know, there's all kinds of options that have existed. And that, um, get you out of uh, sort of your own uh, assumptions and frameworks when you think across these cultures. So I, I think, um, I mean, I don't know what it'll sound like, but I feel like I've been fortunate and enriched to have, you know, spent some of my time uh, really digging into and exploring different attitudes and perspectives on death. Mm-hmm. We've covered so much ground. This has been great. Thank you very much for your time, Gary. Sure. Yeah, it's too bad it's over, but uh, great conversation, great questions, and I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay.